going to be finishing Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Um, and as we finish that passage, we're going to be talking a lot about corporate worship. We're going to be talking a lot about what it means to worship God through song, what it means to encourage one another through song. And so uh, the elders and I, I talked to the elders about this, and we all thought it would be a good idea to look at God's word first for a few minutes. And as we look at God's word for a few minutes and we look at the sermon and we see what he has to say about what it means to worship, that then we would have a direct ability to right after this sermon to be able to apply what we're learning by singing and by worshiping together this morning. So that is why we're doing what we're doing. I know it's a little different and I know some of you might be walking in late. If you can hear me in the foyer, you're going to want to get in here now. Um, um, So we will be getting started here with the sermon, so that's what we're going to be doing. Just so you know, we still will be singing, it'll just be later on in the service. And I want to thank everybody, the elders and the worship team, for being flexible to allow this to happen. I believe this could be a very powerful thing for our church if we let it. Do not get distracted by the difference in order. Uh, Allow yourself to listen to God's word, allow yourself to worship as we worship later on. I know we just prayed to open the service, but I'm going to pray one more time before we launch into into this sermon. So if you'd just join me in prayer. Lord, we do come before you this morning and we thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you're doing in our church body and in our family. And Lord, um, we think of just how much blessings you've given us. And Lord, today is we we come come to your word. Open our eyes and our hearts. Allow allow nothing to distract us from your truth. God, that as we look at your word, we would understand it first of all, but it would also be something we can apply to the way we live. Pray for each and every person here, including myself, that you would not let us go away from here today without learning something new or growing a little bit closer to you or becoming a little bit more like you, Lord. I pray that that would be the case this morning. I thank you for the opportunity now that we have to hear from your word. I pray that it would truly bless us, but even more than that, I pray that it would glorify your name as we talk together. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I said, we will be finishing Colossians 3, 1 through 17 this morning. This is the third sermon uh, and, uh, in this section. And as I told you when we started, this is a big, deep, lots of stuff going on in these 17 verses here in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, some of you are wondering if I'm ever going to go on to past chapter, uh, verse 17. Indeed, I will next week, or actually probably not next week. Well, that could be a surprise, but we'll find out. So, um, but next time we're in Colossians we will be looking at those passages. Uh, uh, but we do have Missions Month coming up, so do understand we'll have a little bit of a break. Uh, but we'll be finishing uh, Colossians soon enough. But uh, Colossians has been a great book. I've continued to love Colossians. This sermon that has been put together for this morning, I'm going to tell you, I think I mentioned this from the pulpit last week, this is the original sermon that I wanted to preach three, four months ago. But then after I went to this sermon and started preparing it, I realized that I can't do this sermon without getting all the context from Colossians. And so that is why we started in the book of Colossians and we continued to go through Colossians so that we could have a solid foundation, so that we could have an understanding of what Colossians is all about. And and therefore, we can now get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And what we're going to look at today, I believe, is going to be pivotal in our Christian walk and in our Christian life. And so that's where we're going to be. So once again, we're going to need to remind ourselves of where we've been. But in order to do that, we start by reading Colossians 3, 1 through 17. So if you would join me in reading Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the passage that we're in. We've looked at several things. So, first of all, real basic, Colossians background, if you remember where we're at, the whole book of Colossians so far has been pointing us towards one solid central truth. That there is a syncretistic culture that has been taking hold in Colossae that is saying you need to add to your faith in Christ. You need to add works. You need to uh, add spiritual practices. You need to add things to your life in Christ in order for you to be complete. That is what true religion is. It's not just Christ, but it's other things coming in too. And Paul is reminding the Colossians church here in this passage, in this whole book, he is reminding them that Christ is superior over anything and everything that they can possibly think of and as christ is superior then he is all we need that we are complete in christ because he is superior over everything and if we can understand that truth then we find ourselves now back in colossians chapter three and in chapter one and two we see no doubt about it christ is the superior one there is no one that can even shine a light on jesus and therefore he is all we need and we look to him for everything so in colossians 3 1 through 17 what we've already seen so far is these couple of points. As the superior one, we have seen that Christ has changed our position. Christ has changed us as a result of him being the superior one. If we have come to know Jesus as our Savior, if we have called out to him for salvation, if we have done that and we are in him, then therefore he has changed our position. He has changed us from a hopeless condition to a new hope. He has changed us from our worldly attention to eternal perspective. He has changed us from our sinful disposition to Christ-like love. Those are three ways that Christ has changed us, how he's traded us, he's made us new. And as we've been changed, then we can have hope. We can look to him and live for him, and we can love like he did love. Then the next thing we looked at in our second time we were looking at this passage was that since we have been changed by Christ, since he has traded us, we should live like it. Remember, we talked about last week about this idea of being traded, and we look at the sports analogy, that when you're traded from one sports team to another, you put off the old uniform, you take off the old uniform that is no good any longer, you get rid of that uniform, and instead you put on your new uniform of your new team, and that is what we've talked about. So you've been traded. Christ has changed you. He's traded you from living for self. He's traded you from living for this world, and instead now you're traded to living for him, and that is what we've looked at last week. And as we've been traded, we need to take off the old selfish life, as I already said. We need to put on the new selfless life. So we get rid of the old uniform, put on the new uniform. And then we need to embrace our true identity in Christ. We need to embrace our true identity in Christ. We need to embrace our new team. We talked about that last week. If you really have been traded from one team to another, you need to start playing for that team. You can't still go back and play for the other team. You are not that team any longer. Your identity has been changed. And we looked at last week that what that means for us as Christians is that we need to understand that our identity is not found in who we are, but our identity is found in who he is. And it's not about who we are, but it's about whose we are. And if you remember talking about that last week, that's where we've been in Colossians chapter 3. That we must embrace the trade. Christ has traded us and we are now in a new team, a new group, a new hope. And that is only in Christ. And we put him on. And we put Christ on in our lives. And we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. So if Christ indeed has changed us, if he has traded us, then we should live like it. Live in our new identity in Christ. And so that's where we've been in Colossians 3, 1 through 17. But today we're going to finish this passage by looking at more in depth what it means to live out our identity in Christ. 
Because we saw last week that it's important that we understand that we are finding our identity in Christ and Christ alone. And now we are going to look at what that looks like. It's one thing to say that we need to love Christ and put him first and have him be our identity. It's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to live it. And so today, Paul, as we go on in Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 17, is going to give us some specific things that will mark the new life, the new identity that we have. How will we live in light of the new team that we're playing on? And what he's in in a sense going to say, if we're going to keep with that illustration, is this. If you are truly on a new team, which we are in Christ, then we will be a team player. He says, how do you play as a team? So it's one thing to be on the team, but then how do you play? And that is exactly what Paul is trying to get us to in the rest of Colossians 3, 1 through 17. He's trying to get us to see, if you've embraced your new identity, if you've embraced your new team, what should you now do? And so, by way of illustration, this is uh, simple for us to understand if we go back to the sports analogy. If we think about it, if you've been traded to a new team, it is time now to play with your new teammates. It's time to play with your new team members. Uh, if you go out onto the field and you're playing your old team, and instead of playing with the new team that you're on, you jump across the line and you start playing for them, you are no longer playing for your new team. So you need to be a good teammate. You need to be a good team member. You need to start playing as a team, and we're going to look at what that looks like in our Christian lives. And there are certain things that we need to be doing if we're going to be good teammates. If we're going to play on this new team, there are certain things that we will do. If you think about a sports analogy, you're going to learn the new system. We talked about that last week. You're going to get to know your other teammates. You're going to figure out what makes other people play well, and you're going to try to play off that so that you can have the best team possible. And what we're going to see today is just like in a sports team, you need to learn to be selfless and not take all the glory for yourself and play along with your teammates. You also need to be unified with your team. You've heard of things, you know, about the idea that a team is nothing unless they're bonded together. That a unified team is stronger than a bunch of guys or a bunch of girls who are super talented. It's about teamwork. And so we know that to be true in a, in a real sense, in a real competition sense. And also on your new team, you want to encourage your other team members. You want to encourage them towards playing better and better and better. And that is what you would do as a good team member, as a good teammate on a team. See, this all applies to physical sports teams, but even more important this morning, it applies to our new spiritual identity. It applies to our new spiritual team that we are now been traded to. So we're going to look at three, these three traits of teamwork, selfishness or selflessness, unification, and encouragement. We're going to look at those three things, and we're going to see how it applies to our identity in Christ. How does it work out in our life as we follow Jesus, as we believe and we run into our identity in him? And so the first thing we're going to see, we're going to find in verses 12 and 13. If we read those again, in verses 12 and 13 here in Colossians chapter 3. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Once again, that's our identity there. We are loved by God. We are chosen by Him. So as, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. The first thing we see about being a good teammate and really being now embracing your identity in Christ is that a team player is selfless. A team player is selfless. Now, the natural illustration for this, we've all been on a sports team, if you've ever played any sport, or maybe you've watched a sport be played where there's a ball hog, right? There's that one person, you know, that always thinks that they have to be the center of the play. Maybe that's in football and you've got a quarterback that'll never really pass it and all he'll do is either run it or do whatever he can for his own glory. Maybe in soccer, which you see a lot, nobody will pass to their teammates. And we've been watching little kid soccer, right? You know, they're like two and three years old. You know, Noah's playing this year. And it's funny because that's exactly what you see. You see a few kids, right, that are a little better than the rest because for whatever reason, and they'll just take the ball and they'll go. But those little kids don't understand the concept of passing yet. All they want to do is get the ball and get it to the goal. That's what their mindset is. But unfortunately, a lot of times, even older people in teams take that analogy and they, they actually are ball hogs. And nobody likes that ball hog because they need to play as a team. And usually a team that is full of a bunch of ball hogs, they're going to, they're going to lose. As you've heard the classic statement, there is no I in team. 
Now, some of you are going to get smart and you're going to say, no, but there's a me. Okay, sure. But um, uh, there is no I in team. You know the concept, right? That the team is not about me. The team is about us. The team is not about just one player, but it's about the whole team. And so that is exactly true in team sports, but it's also true in our spiritual lives. We need to be selfless as well. If we're going to embrace the identity that Christ has given us, we will live a selfless life. And so we see here that we must put others first. That's how we live a selfless life. We must put others first. Why? Because Christ did. And Christ put others first. He put you first. He wanted to serve God's glory by putting us first in the sense that he gave his life for us. And as he was humble and he brought himself down to the level of a human so that he could give his life for us, if he's willing to be humble and do that and put us before him, he has put us first, and that's what we are called to do as well. So what does putting others first look like? Well, we have a list here that's given us in Colossians chapter 3 that'll help us understand what it looks like to put others first. And the first one here is he says that you need to put on compassionate hearts. What is a compassionate heart? A compassionate heart is, is a deep, heartfelt concern for others. A deep, heartfelt concern for others. It's when somebody is struggling, somebody is hurting, somebody needs help that you feel for them. You don't just ignore the issue. You don't just put it off to the side of your mind. When you see somebody struggling and you just say, well, you know, that's for somebody else to deal with or I don't really want to think about that, that is not having a compassionate heart. If we are going to be a true team player in our new identity in Christ, we are going to be compassionate with one another. We are going to feel each other's pain. Okay, that is important that we have a deep, heartfelt concern for others we want to help. And so that's the first thing that we can do to put others first is just to feel their pain and feel what they're feeling. Next one he lists here is kindness. Kindness. And really the word that he uses here is referring to this, that the good of others is of most importance in our lives. That even if it takes sacrifice, we will look for the good, we will try to do good to others. That is kindness. Being kind is more than just saying please and thank you and being, having manners. Being kind is caring about the good of others. And really, in a very real aspect, as we look at this, we just talked about compassionate hearts, that we feel a concern. But then kindness is doing good. And here's the deal. Compassion in action. That is what kindness is. It's compassion in action. We feel concern. We love and we are concerned for someone, but it doesn't just stay there, but it turns into action and we do good to that person. And so compassionate hearts alone are not what we're looking for. It's compassionate hearts that lead us towards kindness and that the good of others is of most importance. But then the next thing he lists in this list after compassionate hearts and kindness is humility. Now many of you have heard this term before. You kind of know what humility is. And it's really the same thing that we said here that this whole point is that we must put each other first. But it's putting others before yourself. It is the exact opposite of self-love. It is loving others, putting others first, that you put yourself behind them. Not that you make yourself of no worth, but you put other people first and make their worth more important. And see, humility almost even sums up compassionate hearts and kindness. We care for people so much that we will do good to them, even if it means sacrifice, even if it means putting us behind. And that is what humility is, putting others before yourself. It's the opposite of self-love. So many people in this world are all obsessed about what is good for them, and they look out for their best. They look out for number one. Just like the ball hog in the team sport is looking out for number one. They want to be the ones with the stats. They want to be the ones scoring the goals. But the way a true team member, the way a true Christ follower in his new identity or her new identity will be is to be humble and have humility. The next one we see in this list is meekness. Now, meekness is a word that a lot of us don't quite understand. We don't usually walk around telling people, hey, you know, you're a meek person. It's not a word we use too often. So what does meekness really mean? Well, a lot of people think a meek person is kind of shy and timid, right? They're like, oh, I don't want to really say anything. No, there's not, that is not a meek person, okay? That is a quiet, timid person. Meekness is different. Meekness is really self-controlled gentleness, it's being self-controlled. It's being under control, really. is what. So it's not somebody who is prone towards flares of anger. It's not someone who is prone towards extreme emotion. It is a person that is self-controlled and they're gentle. 
It's not gentleness in the sense that they're timid and shy. It's gentleness in that they deal with people in a gentle way. They're not harsh. They're not demanding. They're not angry when they deal with others. And they are controlled. They have controlled themselves. They're allowing Christ to really control them. And then they have a gentleness about them. And so meekness is a self-controlled gentleness. Really, in one case, I found this to be the definition. It's really someone who is willing to lose. Now, that's an interesting thought there. If you think about that, you're controlled enough that you don't have to win. Like, that's hard. Like, you're playing a game or something, and you need to convince yourself it's okay that I'm going to lose. And sometimes in life, it actually means knowing that you're going to put yourself in a position where you'll lose so that somebody else will win. That is what meekness is about. You've controlled yourself enough to be so gentle that you are willing to lose if you have to. And not that you will lose in everything because sometimes you will stand up for what is right, but you are willing to lose if need be. The next one that Paul lists here after meekness is patience. This kind of goes right along with that meekness idea. It's slow to anger with others. It's being slow to anger. Our first reaction when people bother us is not to get angry and upset. That is not being self-controlled. That's not being patient. Patience is a hard thing. A lot of us have trouble with patience. And this is specifically talking about patience with people. And sometimes people drive us crazy. And yet sometimes we need to say, you know what, even though I'm being driven crazy, I'm going to be patient with this person, I'm going to love this person, I'm going to put them in front of me by being patient with them and not getting angry with them and not putting them in their place, but instead loving and being patient with them even the hard times. So slow to anger with others. But then Paul also talks about bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. This is almost the same thing as patience um, in a lot of ways. Uh, but bearing with, with, with one another is this. It's you endure in love. You endure. That even in the hard times when things continually go tough and there's a person or people that are really bothering you and you have issues with them for whatever reason it might be, maybe it's a personality clash, maybe it's something else, that you bear with people. Those difficult people. Some of you have mentioned this before and some of you have heard Chip Ingram talk about these people as sandpaper people. You know, the people that rub up against you, and I know our elders have talked about this, that it kind of makes your skin irritated, it, you know, it bothers you, it's you're kind of get, you're, you're getting rubbed the wrong way. We all have people in our life that are like that, right? And here's the truth, and I hope this doesn't shock anybody in this room, there are even people in this room probably that have trouble with somebody else for some reason or another. We're not all perfect, we're all human. And there's people in this room that we will be irritated with at times, maybe some more than others. And it might be different for you than it is for me. But there are sandpaper people in all our lives. And I read this definition of bearing with one another in one of the commentaries I was reading. And I don't remember who it was, but it's not me, just so you know. All right, but this is what he said. Bearing with one another means this. To restrain your natural reaction towards odd or difficult people. To restrain your natural reaction towards odd or difficult people. This is hard. Because when people bother us, when they annoy us, when things aren't going our way, our personalities clash, or maybe somebody talks too much or not enough, or maybe it's somebody who just knows the buttons to push and continues to push the same button over and over again waiting for a reaction. But our calling as Christians and our new identity in Christ is not to react against them in anger. It's not to shut them out. It's not to look for ways to put them down. It's not to look for ways to show them up. No, none of that. That's not what our Christian calling is. We are patient with that person and we bear with one another. Even when people are hard to get along with, we bear with them. That is Christian love. You can love, we need to love everyone even though we might not like everyone all the time. And so we need to bear with one another in patience. And here's the truth I want to share. A lot of times you'll have those people in your life and you'll say, I wish they would change. You'll try to get, you'll, you'll maybe even try to say things to them to get them to change. Or maybe you'll have other people try to say things to get them to change. And the thing is, they keep not changing. And it's very easy for us to say, well, why won't they change? I'm just, since they won't change, I'm going to have nothing to do with them. But that's not our calling either. If they don't change, what needs to happen is your attitude needs to change. If they don't change the way that's bothering you, then you need to work on your attitude and your love because that is what God has called you to do. Even if they continue to be difficult, even if they continue not to change, 
your heart is still called to love through patience and through bearing with one another. And this last thing that Paul lists goes right along with patience and bearing with one another, and that is forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. If we have been forgiven, we should be willing to forgive. And this is all about this, not holding a grudge, but instead seeking restoration. This is what the basis of forgiveness is all about. It's not holding a grudge, but instead you seek restoration. When somebody offends you, when there is a sin that has been perpetrated upon you, you need to be the person that is willing and ready to, to forgive as soon as that person comes to you and asks for forgiveness. And you don't hold a grudge. You don't, you don't let yourself become bitter. You don't let yourself uh, start talking slanderous of that person. You don't let yourself be controlled by that person in your anger and in your frustration with them. But you put it all behind you and you say, you know, for their good, I'm going to, want, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to open my heart to forgiveness because I want to restore my relationship with this person. So many of us, our natural reaction is, you've hurt me, I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. You go find somebody else to be with. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to be with this person, I'm going to love this person, even though they've hurt me, and I will be willing to forgive. And our heart is one of restoration, not one of, of wanting to get away. And so Paul gives us all these things. He says we need to put each other first. A team player is selfless, and we will do that through all these things. We'll feel concern. We'll do good. We'll put others before ourselves. We'll be gentle. We'll we'll be slow to anger. We will endure in love, and we will forgive one another. All of these things together are the way that we can play on our new team, the way that we can be, live out our new identity in Christ. And so we are called to do these things. So we can't just sit by. We need to play as a team and we need to do it with these, in these ways. But being a team player starts then by putting others first, no doubt about it. Not being a ball hog, but instead putting others first. But it continues as we then bond with one another in unity. See, point two is this. A team player seeks unity. As we talked about a little bit earlier, a team who works together can be better than a team that is full of even more talented players. You've seen it happen so many different times. My favorite example is I always go back to the 1980 hockey game, right? You've got the Soviet Union who are the best hockey players in all the world. They had all the skill, all the experience, everything that they needed. On paper, they were going to destroy everybody. But what happened is a a young USA team of a bunch of guys that got together from all over the country who couldn't even get along to start with come together and they learn what it means to play as a team. And they have a bond and a unity that is so strong that they end up defeating the Soviet Union and winning the gold medal in the 1980 Olympics. That's a very classic example of, of, that happened in history. And the truth is the same here, that we need to pursue unity. A good team member pursues unity. They want to bond with their team members. And so we also need to be in the same place where we seek unity. Verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15. And above all these things put on love which binds everything together in perfect Harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. All right, so what does Paul say? What do we see here in God's word about what it means to seek unity? Well, a team player seeks unity by our, we should be bound by love. That's where we start. We should be bound by love. Our binding, okay, our unity should be found in love. We are to be bound by love. And what Paul says here in verse 14 is that love is really the belt on which all the other attitudes hang. That love, all these things we just talked about, from compassionate hearts all the way to forgiving one another, that love encompasses all those things, and love is the belt that holds all those things up. Remember, we're putting on a new uniform. Well, love is the belt that holds that uniform on. And that love is what will bind us to one another. And what is love? It's selflessness. So he's reinforcing this idea that we need to be selfless, that our love and our selflessness will bond us together, that we will be bound, that we will be bound by him, by love that he has given us. And then we see here also uh, in verse 14 that our completion, what my translation says here is perfect harmony. Yours may say something a little bit different. The perfect bond of unity maybe is what yours would say. But this idea of perfect, this word perfect is the same word for complete. We've looked at that before. And what Paul is saying is, look, if you want to be complete in Christ, it's going to be based on your love for one another. 
The completion that you find in Christ will be lived out and worked out in the fact that you love one another, and that will bind everything else together. And if we want to be bound in perfect harmony, then we will love one another. And if you're wondering what it means to love, you can go right back to point one and all of those things that are listed. It's all encompassed there in love. And so love is the belt upon which all things hang. Our completion is based on our love. But then the second thing that Paul says about the way we can have unity is that we should be ruled by peace. We should be ruled by peace. It says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which you indeed were called in one body. Here's the truth of the matter. This word for ruled, when it says to be ruled by the peace of Christ... This word actually means umpire. How perfect. You know, we're looking at this illustration of athletics. But really what umpire is the word. It's an arbitrator, if you will. That peace is going to be our guiding attitude over all of our relationships and all of our decisions. As we have relationships with one another and as we have decisions to make, peace will be the one that rules. That we won't make decisions that will lead to strife. We won't lead to relationships in which we're going to pursue strife, but instead we pursue peace. That peace will be the arbitrator, will be the middleman. That peace will be the umpire over everything in our life. That as we love one another, we will live for peace. Unfortunately, there are some people, and I'm not saying there's any here, but there are some people that their life revolves around making people uncomfortable about going against peace and instead wanting to see conflict. That is not what we are called to be as our new identity in Christ has told us. That we need to be ruled by peace. And Paul says in this verse, in verse 15 also here, that the reason peace has to be our umpire is because we are one body. We are one body. You know, as Paul doesn't say be one body, that you need to work to become one body. No, Paul says we are one body. Christ has made us one body. And if we are one, if we are all in unity, then peace will be what rules us. And therefore, we will love one another. We will be ruled by peace because we are one body. Christ has made us one team. And now we must live together and work together in this life. And unity is what will be found in the person that is putting their identity in Christ and not in themselves. And finally, this last thing really quickly, he throws this on on the end, but he says we should be thankful. So not only are we bound by love and ruled by peace, but we are also bound through our thankfulness. That as I thank God for you and you thank God for me, and we thank God together for all that he's given and all that he's doing, we have a real unity. Because we are distracting away from ourselves and we are thanking him. And as we thank him, we are focusing on him and not on ourselves. And when we do that, and then we can have great unity as we do thank each other. Thank God for each one of us. And as we are thankful together, then we can have true unity. So if we are selfless as a team player, that's great. And if we are unified, that is super important as well. And we will be good team players. But finally, it's also important that we are actively encouraging one another. It is important that we encourage one another in our faith. In the physical area of team sports, you realize if you've ever played on a sport of watch sports, like team members help one another. Like if a team member is really struggling and they're having a hard day, a good team member comes up and like, you know, it's okay. It's all right. We're going to be fine. You know, we're going to be able to get through this. You can do this. I'm going to pump you up and we're going to get ready to go. Don't worry about your mistake. We'll keep going on together. A good team member will also help somebody. Like, if they're struggling with a certain skill, and you say, well, I, I see that you're not doing this so well. Can I show you better how you can do that? And that's how good teams function together, is it's not just about the coach teaching, but it's about the players teaching one another. And that is important in a team. It's also important when somebody keeps doing the same wrong thing over and over again that is hurting the team, that a team member will come to that person and say, hey, look, you're doing this wrong. You're messing up. Let me help you. Let me lift you up and teach you the real way. You're going the wrong way and you're not helping the team, so let's work together so that we can help the team. That's what a good team member does. Teams that are bonded and together, teams that are selfless, that's going to happen. And in our spiritual life, that is also true. A team player is encouraging. A team player is encouraging. And how does that look in our spiritual lives, in our Christian lives? Well, first of all, we must encourage one another with God's word. Here in verse 16, this is where we see this. In verse 16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
We must encourage one another with God's word. Now here it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. This is a very strong word that Paul is using. When he uses the word dwell, it means he has fully, he has completely filled you. So be filled, be completely filled, overflowing with the word of Christ. And when he says here that it's going to dwell, it's not just coming in and leaving. It's not just coming in for a quick house visit. It's living in you. That the word of Christ is living in you. And if it's living in you, then you will be controlled by the word of Christ. You will be controlled by the gospel. The good news that Christ has lived his perfect life, that he died for you, he rose again and is living for you and interceding for you. That is the gospel, the grace gospel that Steve preached about several weeks ago, that we look to grace and we know his gospel and the word of Christ then will become a dwelling in us. It'll control us. And it's not only the gospel, but it's the teachings that we find right here in God's word. It'll guide us. It'll indwell us. Everything, it will just be part of us. And we need to be teaching one another those things. So that's the first thing. So we encourage one another with God's word and we teach the wisdom of God's word. That's what this verse says. First of all, we teach one another. We teach one another in wisdom. So we look for ways to teach people God's word. That doesn't mean everybody has to become a Sunday school teacher or everybody has to become a preacher. But what it means is that everyone will find ways to build people up in the word of Christ. When people are struggling, when people need help, when people are looking for that leg up, you will give them Christ. You will give them the word of Christ. And you will continually build them up and teach them what Christ would want them to know. That's the positive thing that we do. We teach when we see somebody needing to be taught. But then the other thing that this verse says, we also not only teach in wisdom, but we admonish towards wisdom. We admonish using God's word once again. Admonish is a strong word, but it basically means that you are pushing somebody towards doing something that's doing something wrong, towards doing something that's right. It's kind of like a correction type idea. What it is, is if I see you struggling, if I see you hurting, if I see you sinning and you're not having victory in your life, then I am going to confront you and call you out in love so that we can see you then learn and get better and will point you to God's word so that you will change the way that you're going. If you're going the wrong way, we're going to bring you back to the right way. That is actually the most loving thing we can do. And so... In God's word, as we see people who need to know God's word or people who are breaking, the, breaking what God has said in his word and they're going against his word, then we admonish them back to where they need to be. So we teach and we admonish. We teach. Uh, they're struggling. We're counseling them. We're bringing them back in. That is admonishing. And so we teach and we admonish towards God's word. But then the other thing that Paul says we do, not only do we teach and admonish, But then he says that we singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We also worship with one another. Now we just had Sunday school and I want to make sure everybody understands this. When I say worship, I'm not simply talking about singing. Like there are so many elements of worship, listening to a sermon, praying with one another, fellowship with one another. All of these are ways that we can worship as we give honor to God. That is worship. But specifically, Paul talks here about worshiping in song. He says we worship with one another, and he's talking about this singing. And that is just one aspect of worship, and he's using that as an example. But today, in just a few minutes after this sermon is over, we're going to have an opportunity to sing with one another. And the hope is this, that when we sing, we sing to encourage one another. That's the first thing here. We worship with one another, we sing to encourage one another. And also in this passage, we see that we sing with thankfulness to God. We already talked about the thankfulness part. If we're all thankful together, our eyes are away from us and towards God, and we are thankful as we worship together. But it's also important that that Paul is writing here that... um, that the word of Christ should dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's connected. The singing part is connected to the teaching and the admonishing. The singing part is connected to God's word dwelling in our lives. And so it's important that we sing. It's important that we come together to worship as we thank God together. And so I have a few things that I want to say, and it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, and I'm sorry, but there's some things that as we think about this, and Paul specifically talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that as we come together to sing, it is a special moment. I'm afraid that a lot of us, 
I'm including myself, have taken the time that we have in this worship service of singing songs together as an opportunity just to, have, just to sing a song that I happen to like. And if it's a song I don't like, I don't sing as loud. And if it's a song I really like, I sing really loud. And, and the thing is, we come in, I think a lot of us don't even realize why we're singing. Like, and it's kind of weird if you think about it. I mean, if, if people don't, aren't from around Christian circles, never been in a church before, and they walk into our church, any church really, that's singing songs, they're going to be like, this is a little weird. Like, you don't normally get together at your family reunion and start by singing three or four songs, okay? Um, but that is special, for us as a body in Christ, for us who are one in one another in Christ with our new identity, when we come together to sing and to worship with one another, it is a real experience that is meant to encourage each other. So what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. We don't just sing with each other, but we also need to be singing to each other. You see, corporate worship is not a me and God time, but corporate worship is an us and God time. And I say this, I believe it's important. I believe that as we sing and as we worship God together, it is very easy for us to all of a sudden start thinking that it's all about us. Therefore, if it's songs we don't like, we won't sing as loud. If there's a church that we're going to that has songs that we're not, the best, most, that we're not a big fan of, we'll just leave because we want songs that we like. See, but worship is not about me and God, Cor- corporate worship. We can worship, if you sing songs and if you worship throughout the week, then yes, it's between you and God. You're with God and you're spending time with him. But when you come to church and we are corporately worshiping together, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about us. That we worship God together, we encourage one another, that we are thankful with one another, that even we teach one another Remember, we dwell, the word of Christ dwells in us. We teach, we can teach through song. This song time is not just for entertainment. The time we sing together is for building one another up. And so what does that mean for us? Well, our worship time together is not a time of selfish emotion or selfish entertainment, but it is a time of unity and encouragement. I would be very careful. I'm going to say this carefully because I really don't want to offend anybody based on my opinion. But here's a couple things that I think we can draw out of this idea of how important it is to sing with one another. The first thing is this. A lot of us can get very emotional when we sing. That is not a bad thing. God has given us emotions. That is a good thing. God wouldn't have given us emotions if they weren't meant to be used. But if it's our emotion that takes over the day, and we are so caught up in our own emotions, and we are caught up in this area where it's just us and God and nobody else is here, We are missing out on what God wants for us in corporate worship. I would actually encourage people to look around as you sing. I know that sounds weird. But as you look around, you are building one another up. I'll say one thing. The last couple weeks when we've been singing, I've done something new that I hadn't done before. Usually I'm in the back for worship time, but I've been coming up and sitting right here in the front right-hand corner. And I'll tell you what, the worship experience has completely changed because I am up there and I'm hearing everybody else sing. And I'll tell you what, for you people who are up front, I know why you're up front. If you're in the back, hey, I understand there's reasons to be in the back. Trust me, I've got little kids, I get it. But you are missing out. Because I'll tell you what, you come up here and it's totally different. Instead of the singing coming away from you, it's coming to you. I mean, I would love to even say a day that we were just in a big circle and singing together. It's just awesome. And you know what? That's the point. Like, we sing to one another. We encourage one another. When I come to sing with you, I don't want it to be about me and and just figuring out whether I like the song or not. I want it to be about us. I want you to build into my life, and I want to build into yours, whether you have a good voice or not. It doesn't matter. That we love one another and encourage one another through song. And so I would say that, like, uh, not that you have to sit up front, but man, if you get an opportunity, you should. And, and also, don't just get so caught up in your personal emotions that you forget that other people are here. You're missing out on what God wants for you. You're not playing as a team. You're not playing with that unity and encouragement that he's called you to. The other thing is, some of you, and everybody has reasons, and I'm really trying to be careful here, and I understand, but I know there's a lot of people that walk into our service about 10, 15, sometimes 20 minutes late. Listen. Um, I understand there's a lot of reasons for that sometimes. Uh, I, I have kids to get ready in the morning too. I know there's that. There's things that are going on Sunday mornings. I get all that. But when you miss out on that first 15 minutes, yeah, you're missing out on announcements, which by the way, you should be here for too. But, um, <laughs> but even more than that, you are missing out on our first opportunities we have to sing with one another. 
And I almost feel like it's this idea of, you know, we can be late to church. It's not that big a deal. All we're going to miss is a couple of songs. That is detrimental to your faith and it's detrimental to mine because I want to sing with you and I want to sing to you and I want you to sing to me. And see, you're missing out and we're missing out because you're not here to worship with us. It's not about, hey, you need to be on time or you're not spiritual. It's not about that at all. It's about be here when you can to worship with one another. And so I know I took a rabbit trail there, but I feel like as we come together to worship, we need to understand that the worship time, especially as we talk about song, it is not a personal time. It is a time for all of us to worship together. And so everything we've looked at so far, uh, I'm going to sum it up. So we get back to, since Christ the superior one has changed us and has traded us to a new team, we now have our identity in him alone. And now we must live out this new identity. And this identity is lived out as we care for one another more than ourselves, as we seek unity through love and peace, and we encourage one another with God's word. Those are the three things that we can do to truly embrace the new identity we have in Christ. Put ourselves second, put others first, to seek unity and to encourage one another. I want to read verse 17 now. Uh, And this will be in closing. This is kind of the conclusion. I'm going to conclude with a verse and a few thoughts. Verse 17 in chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We already looked at this verse one other time, but in verse 17, this is what we see. It gives us a summary of Colossians 3, 1 through 17. But also, not only does it give us a summary of Colossians 3, 1 through 17, I believe this gives us a summary of the whole book. What we've seen so far, what we've seen now, and what we will see in the Colossians, I believe that Paul is using this verse as the center verse of the passage of the book, and it's, everything is, encom- is encompassed in this. And here's the simple truth. Since Christ is superior, we must do everything in his name. We must live in his name. If Christ is truly superior, since Christ is superior, we must do everything in his name. And living in his name is simply representing him because he is our identity. Going back to the team analogy, what you do as a team reflects on the coach. It reflects on the owner. What you do as a team will reflect on that. And the truth of the matter is, is our identity is in Christ. So therefore, whatever we do and however we live, however we speak, it doesn't matter what we're doing, what we're saying, it all needs to represent Christ. We're no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for him, and therefore we are representatives. That doesn't mean that everywhere we go, we tell people, oh, by the way, I just met you two seconds ago, I'm going to give you the whole gospel. Maybe sometimes you do. But what this means is that we are always representing Christ to the very best of our ability because he is our identity. The whole book of Colossians can be summed up with this verse, that since Christ is superior, we do everything and anything we do is only through and for him. And if we live that way, then our identity in Christ will be fleshed out as we see these things we've talked about today. Some questions to consider as we sing, as you go away. First of all, have you been traded and changed by Christ? Have you accepted the gospel? Have you come to know Jesus? Have you realized that he lived a perfect life, that he died for you, that he rose again, that he's waiting for you just to come to him in faith and believe in him? And when you believe in him, that's going to change your life completely. And if you only come to him, believe in him, love him, then you can be saved. You can have, an, you can have eternal life with him and you can have true Christian unity with everyone else here. If you have not done that today, make sure you find out more how or you just call out to Christ and you say, take my life, I believe in you, I trust you. Please let me live your life through me. Here's some questions for others to ask. Is your life characterized by selflessness and concern for others, or are you only focused on yourself? Only you can answer that question. Are you unified with love and peace with others, especially those around you here in our body? Are you truly unified in, in love and in peace with others? Or are you divisive? Maybe divisive in your heart, maybe divisive as you speak to others. But we need to be living with love, unified in love. Are you encouraging others in their walk with Christ? Or are you neglecting the opportunities that you have to build others up? This is a big one you need to ask. Are you truly taking every opportunity you have to encourage one another? Here at church, in small groups, uh, one-on-one, I don't care when or where it is, 
But are you encouraging others? Or are you just neglecting others and neglecting the opportunities that you have to build one another up? And finally, is your life a true reflection of your identity in Christ? Take some time to contemplate that. Think about that. Is your identity, the identity you have in Christ, is that being lived out? Or are you still living for yourself? It's not too late to repent. Christ says, repent and come to me. Even people who don't know, even people who know Christ and yet walk away, we can come back and we can repent. And I would encourage everyone to do that. Make sure that we are living in a way that reflects the fact that our identity is in Christ. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to sing some songs. And this is an opportunity now. We just talked about how we can encourage one another through singing. How we can encourage one another through teaching and through admonishing. Well, here's our opportunity to apply what we've just heard. As we sing together, remember, we are not singing just with one another, but we are singing to one another. That this is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me, but it's about us. So as we sing, I would pray and hope that you would sing together, learn together, love one another, have unity, and ultimately that you would see Christ and show Christ to others. So with all that being said, let's sing. Please stand. Isn't it good to sing with one another? As we close our worship time together, uh, I want to read one passage from Ephesians. It goes right along with what we've been reading. Um, a little lengthy, but please listen as we close our service with this reading. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so they may have something to share with everyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this service, and I thank you for this body, and I thank you for these people. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we take our identity seriously, that we know that it's not about who we are, but it's about whose we are. And Lord, as we know that we are in you and you are in us, God, I pray that you would help us as a body, as a group, to be able to build one another up, to encourage one another, to be selfless and to show love in the ways that you've called us to do, and we know we can only do that through your power, through the Holy Spirit working in and through us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to love, help us to encourage, and help us to remember our identity in you. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.